Welcome to the RSP cast. I am Dwayne McFarland. That's Mount. Wait a minute. Hold on. I think <laughs> I've got that mixed up somewhere around here. Hey, Somebody... I'm, getting the be- I'm getting the better end of that deal, so I'll go with it, man. Uh, I don't know about that, but anyway, <laughs> that's Dwayne McFarland. I'm Matt Waldman. You can't tell us apart if you don't live in the South, even though Texas would tell you that their accents are way different than what's going on down here in Georgia, So, which is probably true. But um, we got a nice film and data show set up for you for week 11. We're going to cover a lot of different topics. It's always nice to have Dwayne on, and we're just going to get started because it's the middle of the season, and we're busy as all get out, so we're going to try and pack this hour in as much as possible. So there's the non-football talk for you. So let's start off with some players who Dwayne suggested here, and it's kind of funny we kind of mind-melded on this one because I was sitting here about three-quarters of this list I was wanted to talk about. So let's lead off with one. What's wrong with the Ravens? And and Lamar Jackson, I had a talk earlier with Russ um, Landy this, um, this morning or this afternoon about that topic, and I said I was going to talk with you about it. So I figured, tell me about the data. What's going on with Jackson, and what are your concerns? Yeah, I mean, obviously I want to I want to hear what you're – seeing on the film but you know the the thing that the data you know is telling me is some of the same stuff that we were looking at you know last year in preseason you know and it's just that you and i actually discussed at that time like what would happen if a team actually and this wasn't preseason this was toward this was end of the season after they had kind of maybe it was this preseason when they had destroyed everybody last year and we were like okay what could you know really derail the ravens offense um but last year um, before this season, we did talk about some of the things with Lamar Jackson, where his over-the-middle throws were really great, leading receivers on crossers, all those sort of things were really good. But there was just a little bit of you know potential gap right in the game as far as you know pushing the ball outside down the field. And then you know this preseason, we talked about what could potentially derail the Ravens' offense um, on on the pod, and really that's what it came down to. Well, what if a team could take away the middle of the field? and forced Jackson to throw outside, especially if they weren't getting like, you know, five, six, seven yard runs right on first down, which they were getting, you know, quite often last year. And so they just haven't been either able to execute or as fortunate for whatever reason, right, with some of those first down run plays that set up the right kind of plays on second and short and things like that for Jackson to be able to take advantage of some of those things. And I think what it's allowed and again, I'm still digging into some of this, but what I can see on the surface, what it seems like it's allowed is for teams just to play much more coverage um, when they're not in a bind, right? And like second and second and three, second and four, those short yardage plays where it could easily be, you know, a run, you still want to respect it, but it gives Jackson, you know, that ability to go play action. And the team definitely has to, you know, the opposing linebackers definitely bite. And then that gets either, um, you know, Mark Andrews and behind, you're seeing Willie Sneed, you know, doing some of that this year. But Marquise Brown has really just kind of disappeared, Matt. Um, you know, and it's, it's it's just interesting. Like even last week, trailing, you know, pretty much that whole game, the Patriots were out ahead. Now weather was a definite factor, right, in the second half. The so monsoon, I'll kind of yeah. yeah, I'll kind of dismiss basically like from mid-third quarter on because it just went nuts. But before that, even though it had been wet, um, I love when they pan to the view where basically you're seeing what the quarterback is seeing. Um, But what I was seeing is literally people flooding the middle of the field. Like Mark Andrews is running the crosser. There's a guy floating back with him here. There's a guy over the top of him. And then there's a guy kind of squeezing this way. And there's a sideline route over here. It's like, they're just pinching down on, on what they know 
and you know Bill Belichick's going to do this. What's the thing that Lamar Jackson's best at? And they're going to try to take that away. And I, I, so I think it's two things. One, it is Lamar Jackson. He does struggle hitting the outside. It's, it's like if you look at him, and every quarterback's different. I'm not saying they have to throw the ball the same way, but like if you look at the way he throws the ball and the way Russ Wilson throws the ball, right, they're two very different things. Like Lamar Jackson – and this is where you you come in huge, right? More so than me is it just seems to be much more on a line, right? Versus just kind of dropping it in. Um, and you can have accuracy really probably either way, but it seems like you would need a little bit more arc, you know, on those passes. And he's just struggling to hit those. I mean, Hollywood Brown has been open on several of those, right? Where Jackson hasn't been able to hit it. But the biggest thing I see outside of that, where the data does kind of speak to it, you know, more so is just they're not as in good of situations on second and third down makes them more predictable. And teams are just basically inviting Lamar Jackson to beat them in a way other than these deep crossers and things like that, where he really made his money last year. Yeah. And I think that's pretty accurate. You know, one of the things that's that's happening here and I, and just to give a little bit of context to what Russ and I talked about earlier this afternoon is that this is something I've kind of been pounding on a lot of different venues of where I, I provide content. And that's that quarterback development is not a one-year thing. It's really a three-year thing. Um, and the reason it's a three-year thing is that, you know, we always talk about the first four to six weeks where basically the quarterback gets to play against defenses that really don't have a game plan against them. They're just running their own basic game plan against what they've known in the past about that team or what they generally want to try to do. And then, you know, those first four to six games with any quarterback, whether it was Marcus Mariota, whether it was um, Jameis Winston, whether it was Mitchell Trubisky, whoever, Tua Tagovailoa, Joe Burrow, you know, what teams discover over those first four to six weeks is what that player does well. You know, like, oh, well, he can read, you know, he can read cover two well. He can throw it into the cover two honey hole well. Oh, he picks up this kind of blitz pretty easily. The cat billets, he can pick that up. He's, you know, he's a good runner. He manages the pocket reasonably well when we get a little bit of pressure in on him from the edge. Um, and that's what happens during that early part. But then defenses get enough data, they get enough film, and they start deciding, you know what? We don't know exactly what he does horribly. We may know one or two things that he doesn't do very well. But, you, you know, we don't know everything he doesn't do well. So let's pick the things we think we can affect the worst. Like, you know, we have... We have a good defensive front that can get pressure. So let's try and get some pressure off the edge and close or pressure in the middle and close off the side so that they can't evacuate from the, you know, from the side of the pocket. Let's, we don't think he throws well moving to his left. So let's try and do things that force him to his left. Oh, he's, he can't read. He, he, he kind of loses his water when we like stack the box and look like we're going to do an all-out blitz and can't figure out where, where to go, like Jared Goff. Then, yeah, you then we do some of that. Well, there's only so many things they can do. One is because the opposing defense may have personnel deficiencies on their own that can't do some of the things that they'd really, they know might be able to stop a player. And then there's some things that they know fit within their game plan. And then there's things that they're like, he didn't look that great against these things, but we don't have enough data to verify or enough film to verify that this is really a weakness yet. So it's not in our priority list and we don't want to overload our game plan with a bunch of things that are unknowns. So they try one or two things out and there's, you know, five or six defenses over the, those next weeks that try one or two things out. Some of them overlap, some of them don't. 
and either the quarterback figures it out and they go, well, forget that. He handled that pretty well. Or, oh, that does look like a bit of a flaw. And other teams start picking up on that as well. But it's a gradual thing. So what ends up happening is that some quarterbacks, they get found out pretty quickly, you know, after that first five or six weeks. And they either improve upon those issues during the summer or those one or two things that they saw that were thrown at them. Or they don't. And if they don't, that's usually when you see that second year slump and it's like, wow, you better get it together by year three or else you're not going to be a starter. Um, Some of them actually do overcome those issues and that's fine. But then the process starts all over again in year two where it's like, or now that those teams have more data, now they can refine what they're doing and going, you know what, in these situations, we can run this type of a blitz, drop into this type of coverage, run this kind of hybrid look, and it's going to confuse the hell out of him because the data says so based on the film that we've charted and looked at this player. And we understand that. So now we can do some of these things. And then there's some teams, again, they're like, we'd like to do these things in theory, but um, you know, we have Seattle's cornerbacks and they basically give everything away. So, you know, we can't really do anything like that. Um, we've got a we've got a safety who plays outside linebacker and, and we've got a bunch of injured cornerbacks who play zone or in, in Seattle zone is like about is kind of the same thing as having uh, marijuana laws, I guess. You know, there probably just aren't that many of them. So anymore. So, I mean, you look at it from that standpoint, they're just giving it away up there. And that's the uh, it, you know, that's one of the situations in terms of and I'm being facetious about the previous that that little thing but anyway that's the point is that it really takes two or three years to accumulate all that so when you look at Lamar Jackson the point being is that he's in the middle of year two as a starter you know Mm -hmm. two and a half years in if you want to count the rookie season and they are they're taking away the things that he can't that he hasn't shown he can do and as Russ pointed out you know the the Ravens knew what he could and couldn't do as a starter, and I think that they knew that they could start. To, they could get this offense off the ground with what Lamar did early, and then hopefully Lamar and them could work things out to develop him in the areas of his perimeter game over the next couple of years as a starter, and still be able to play winning football, and. In knowing that defenses were going to be like, well, we're not just going to sit here and let you do what you do until Lamar develops into the things that he can't. We're going to throw throw this difficult stuff at you. So I think what you're seeing is the ups and downs of what teams can and can't do to stop Lamar. And so Lamar has some good weeks, some bad weeks. They're six and three, and he's going to have to learn how to, you know, be able to do some things to throw to the outside, and the offense is going to have to accommodate that. And they're trying to, I think, to a degree, but you know, the whole, it's kind of like teaching someone how to swim and they know how to float. And it's like, they've dumped him in, they've dumped him in the ocean with a life preserver and keep pouring buckets of water over him. You know, he might be able to, he might be able to, you know, tread water pretty well and hold his breath well underwater. But this is one of those situations. that's kind of difficult. Have you seen anything, you know, just as far as his overall accuracy, even on some of the verses, like some of the things he used to do last year, because, you know, I, I don't get to watch near as much of the film as you do. Um, but overall, like right now, he ranks 27 out of 35 quarterbacks in his accuracy rating, right? Meaning that the catch is at least within the frame. Um, if you look at pinpoint passing, which is a cool thing that you look at, you know, he's 31 out of 35 quarterbacks. Um, 
catchable and accurate, meaning, you know, the receiver could catch it, but they had to put a little effort right into helping uh, Lamar Jackson out. You know, he is number one out of 35, right? Which you don't want to be number one. You'd rather be lower in that category. And then as far as uncatchable, um, inaccurate, meaning really the receiver, you know, shouldn't have caught it, but you know, they, they did catch, you know, they did catch the ball, but it was inaccurate. The ball was still inaccurate It's 17%, uh, which is not terrible. That's like number nine out of 35. So that's not bad, but just his general accuracy and his pinpoint accuracy overall is down period. Yeah. Now, a lot of that could come back to the things we just talked about. Teams are trying to force him to do things he's not used to, but I just didn't know if you saw anything even on what we would have probably considered his money throws last year, if there's anything different going on. I think it's just more that teams are pushing him on a growth schedule ahead of what the Ravens would like to do as a learning curve. And it's, he's uncomfortable. And I think that's part of it. Um, you know, there was a point where I started to wonder a little bit and I posed this question to Russ um, because, you know, I have some Ravens fans and some Ravens listeners and some content people on Ravens who are, who follow what we do. And, and they asked me what, I thought of this and my first inclination was I wonder how I wonder if the Ravens thought Lamar Jackson wasn't the most intelligent quarterback of the prospects and because and that they needed to like like stair step him into the offense and use a simpler form of things and now that he's caught up they've underestimated his intelligence and I didn't wasn't sure how I felt really about that, but it, I had some inklings and wonderings because there were so many people out there, at least in the media, who just seemed like that they felt like he didn't have the goods to be a quarterback. And a lot of it wasn't just technique, but it was that he just wasn't really had the mental capabilities of being a quarterback, which I always thought was kind of stupid. But, you know, there were things that were said. Um, and, you know, you watched him at Louisville with um, Petrino and Petrino has a very advanced offensive concepts um, and it was a pretty and has a terrific had a was a terrific offensive mind in the NFL known as one of the better ones and you know Lamar Jackson functioned very well in that offense um, it was a steep learning curve for him because he came from a Florida offense that um, Florida high school offense it was mostly running the football so and it was nothing like what he he dealt with so what I'm getting to is that I wondered if maybe Lamar Jackson was underestimated for his ability to learn fast and to and that he had outpaced what the what the Ravens had given him and now he was wanting more because when they asked Rich Eisen asked him well Lamar what do you think's going on his first thought was well they know our plays and then he started mm -hmm. to want to say something else and most people would say well a lot of teams know his plays you know no other play, you know the offense's plays but it seemed like he kind of figured out that maybe he, you know, as Russ said, he needed the red light went off in his head because he's a smart dude and realized that he needed to shut up and just like keep repeating something because what he was about to reveal was stepping across the line um, and he didn't want to put his team under the bus. And so um, and and Russ told me when I posed this question to Russ, Russ said that, you know, from the people he's talked to who knew who he knows within the Baltimore organization or linked in some way to them, the Baltimore organization recognized him for being a very, very, very smart dude. Um, and that the intelligence factor, they would not have underestimated his intelligence. In fact, the reason they probably picked him is because they valued it and his pocket presence. While his accuracy was a notable issue, they probably felt like that they could work with it and stair-step him into 
further development. And if they can't, then it's going to be a bigger problem because they're going to have to figure out original ways to recreate what they wanted to do, what they were doing last year. And so I think that's where we're at is that this next year, he's going to this offseason, he's going to really have to solidify what other uh, other whatever things he was working on with the perimeter game that haven't completely taken shape yet. Um, and he's going to have to solidify them yeah. and move forward. Or the Ravens are going to have to figure out more inventive ways to to open up the middle of the field for him that they haven't been able to do because yeah. defenses have come up with a counter and they got to counter that counter. So it's going to probably be a combination of both. Yeah. So I just, I was able to pull up kind of this cool thing behind the scenes at PFF. Like, so between, um, 15 and 25 yards, I was looking for a decent grouping where he, he had actually had some, a decent amount of passes, not a ton, but I mean, he's still hitting 60%, you know, in that range between the numbers, but then, like if I grab a different group, same same uh, depth of target, but now I go outside uh, the numbers to the right, right? His completion percentage drops to 38.5. You know, so he's still hitting the throws in the middle of the field. They're just not letting him have as many. They're really trying to force him to do some different things. Um, so, I mean, outside, down the sidelines, you know, he's got issues, but those are really hard to judge too much, to be honest, like from a data perspective, because there's, there's not really, you don't have a very big sample size. Like, right. and that can do this kind of thing each year. So I don't really want to like grab those and like tell the audience what those numbers are. Um, that, that's what I saw whenever I was watching, I've seen him miss a few big plays, but that's such a small sample size. It's hard to look at, but like in this particular area of the field, you can see that, you know, he is struggling outside the numbers between the 15 and 25 yard line um, underneath and everything, you know, I mean, he's a little below the league average, but like, if you look like from zero to 15, you tell me what you want me to grab zero to 15 yards inside the numbers. Sure. I mean, he's 76%. Yeah. You know, I mean, That's so, where they, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's fine. So um, it, it's, it's, it's really when you ask him to get a little deeper and work outside. Yeah, I think it's I think it's this is really more of a patience play situation and defenses have just figured out that offense enough to be able to make it tough for them if the defense has enough personnel or good enough coaches to be able to execute the deal. And so that's kind of what you're seeing. Still promising player. I will add this as kind of a little coda to our conversation before we go on to the next guy is that if Lamar Jackson makes that next step as an outside thrower, um, you will want to go to Vegas and put some money down on Miles Boykin having at least an 800-yard season that following year. And if people are like, "Gosh, that third-year breakout thing worked out for Miles Boykin," it'll have to. It'll be because um, Lamar Jackson can actually now throw him balls that that Miles Boykin is great at being able to get open and catch. Um, yep. But. You know, that's for next year. That's probably for this, you know, for the summer if we go there. Um, the next guy I want to talk about is DeAndre Swift. Because I noticed from you that over, I think, two or three weeks ago, we had both written some content separately. And you had mentioned, you know, looking at some of the things you posted on Twitter that, you know, you felt like this was a guy on the rise. And certainly he has been on the rise when you look at his fantasy production. I looked at him as it was after his Jacksonville game. And I said, yeah, I had a box score breakout, but he didn't have a film breakout. Like he's up and down yeah. for me. I see him as a as a spot play, but when you look at where he's been, the number of touches he's gotten, and the fact that the running back production has been pretty much for crap in fantasy um, this year, at least from what I can eyeball, 
Um, you know, I think you, you, you know, you look at it from that perspective. Swift has been exactly what you said from that standpoint. And I'm not trying to like sugarcoat it or make it like, like, um, take away your, the, the juice from what you said, because he has been what you, what you've talked about there. But I think that he's an interesting guy to talk about from a dad in film. Cause I think that there's a little bit of nuance of difference between, between the two. Right. Yeah. I mean, the bigger thing, you know, for, for me with Swift, you know, to your point, um, is really just more about, you know, the utilization, right? How is he getting used? That's just huge for, for running backs, especially when we're yeah. talking about like, you know, a piece, you know, trying to really help the masses when it comes to fantasy football. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, talent is big, but opportunity is king. And so that's why I spend so much time trying to really dig into new ways to peel apart the data to truly understand what these guys' roles are. You know, and the good thing for Swift very early on that I saw, which is something, for example, that you have never seen for Ronald Jones. Um, they were trusting him in the two minute offense right away, right out of the gate. He was playing the two minute offense. Well, if you're going to be out there for the two minute offense, what does that tell you? Well, the coach needs to know that any audible, anything they're doing, it's quick pace. They got to trust that, you know, the playbook, you know what you need to do. The other thing that I was seeing early on is he was out there often on third and fourth down and seven plus yards, which is what I call long down and distance, um, because it's really not arguable. I think everybody can agree over seven yards. You know, people want to debate, but over seven yards and third and fourth down, that's a long down and distance, meaning the defense isn't expecting a check down. They're expecting you to try to push the ball vertically down the field unless you're Alex Smith and you're just willing you know, to throw for three yards and punt. Um, but otherwise, the defense is expecting you to try to push the ball down the field. And so what that typically means is you've got to be ready for an audible to pass block, right? It, it really doesn't do a lot of good to throw a pass to a back on, you know, long down and distance because the defense is just going to rally to the ball. Sometimes, yes, you'll avoid a tackle. You'll come up with a play. So the next thing that told me is they probably trust him in pass, in, in pass blocking situations. And then the final thing was they were already using him inside the five-yard five line. Now, Adrian Peterson was getting some of that work too, but they had no problem leaving him out there. So those are all, when I look at that, those are critical areas from like a coaching perspective. If you talk to coaches, like they care about those three things. And the coaches, are the, they're the people that watch these guys every day in practice. We get to watch their film. We get to look at their data. But I think people underestimate like how valuable they're watching all of those reps they're watching they're looking for technique all these things that you help you know your listeners break down you know your readers break down they get to see that every day right that's all a blind spot to all of us and so when i see certain things like this it's just an indicator to me that he's probably got a role that can grow because he's already doing the really hard things and then i think that's what we just saw last week Last week, they came out, you know, two weeks ago, they said they were going to do something like this, and they didn't really. It kind of stayed just a three-way split between he and Peterson, who Peterson's looked good. Like, Peterson made a run two weeks ago, like his juke move. I was like, good God, like, is this, is this, is this you know, 23-year-old AP, or is this, you know, this AP? I mean, he still has those moments where you're just like, wow, he kind of still looks the same. Acceleration after the cut, right? Not quite there, but the power is still there. The move itself was there. Anyway. I know you love AP, but uh, I was kind of a sidebar. But back on Swift this last week, you know, he really just took over. He played uh, – he ran a route on 66% of the dropbacks. That was a season high. Played 73% of the snaps, season high, 16% um, of the targets. The other interesting thing with him is 
Um, they really try to get, get him the ball when he's on the field. So that's another thing I look for. So for example, first read targets, Matt, to running backs, typically 37%. Usually a running back is a check down option. There's fair, there's some exceptions to that. Their names are Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, James White. I'm probably leaving a couple Austin Eckler. There are guys though, that truly are incorporated into their team's passing game. And there's two things I look for, which is, is the average depth of target up over zero, meaning is, and typically over one is really good, right? That you're seeing that they're trying to work them down the field. They're using them in different routes. And then the next thing I'm looking for is how often are they a first read Are they a first read target? So I just told you the league average is 37% for a running back. Here are Swift's numbers over the last four weeks, 80%, 60%, 75%, 80%. So what that tells you is they're designing plays for him, right? He's the first read on those plays. It's not that the quarterback looks downfield. Oh, Marvin Jones is not open. TJ Hawkinson's covered. Let me find Swift and dump it to him. He's still getting some of those, but the majority of his targets are coming on the first read, which is a really positive sign. So those are kind of the things I was seeing even before he truly got the seven, like this week, what you saw, the snaps came, he got 73%. But those are the kind of things I kind of try to look for. So it wasn't as much, you know, you've got a much better view on how does he look on the field? What are the things that he's doing? I was just seeing how the coaches were trusting him. And it just ultimately like the levy kind of broke this last week and they just gave it all to him. Yeah, and I think that that's the case is that I think your points are very astute in terms of, you know, why he's being trusted and those indicators that show that, Um, you know, on the field in terms of running the football. um, He's it's kind of funny that you mentioned Adrian Peterson, because, you know, I did a profile on Peterson early in the season and he looked, you know, he, he looks like his old self with the exception again of acceleration to top speed like his top speed just isn't there anymore um he has the within the first 10 yards absolutely the same guy um jump cuts the powerful jump cuts acts the same guy power and balance absolutely very similar to what he was but that part's missing the problem is is that he lives and dies off the jump stop and jump cut that's like his thing and he loses. He used to lose tons of yards doing that, but he'd also give you like three gains for 180 yards and a, and, and two <laughs> touchdowns in the in those types of moments. And it's now, like the running back equivalent of air yards. Yes, exactly. <laughs> running back jump cut. Adrian Peterson's jump cut yards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what it was. And so he lives and dies by those. Sometimes he still has success with those enough to be um, a committee or high end committee or low end starter for periods of time as a mid thirties, you know, running back who has no business having legs like that. Frank Gore is probably looking at him and going, if I had your legs, um, there would be me on the top of every stat, um, stat list. And everyone else would be about three miles behind me. But I got injured in at Miami a, a couple of times and before I even got injured in, as a 49er. So, it, you know, that's the crazy part about his game. The thing is, is that Deandre Swift watches this guy, all the time in practice and he's the elder statesman you're going to look at him to advice and look at how you should play your game well when you watch deandre swift's game at georgia and you also watch it at, at detroit the best parts of his game are when he keeps his feet on the ground and when he's making moves that are not as dynamic um he's very good at making people miss when he can use footwork combinations similar to dalvin cook where he can be a little bit more curvy linear, where he can use various levels of 
of footwork that's efficient to be able to change direction as opposed to these dynamic jump stops and jump cuts. And when he's against Jacksonville watching him in that game, the good plays came when he wasn't trying to jump cup and jump stop. The bad plays came when he was trying to be Adrian Peterson. And I think he, and I haven't seen him try to be um, that type of player at Georgia when I watched him run. But at Detroit, suddenly he's incorporating some of these things. So as much as I love Adrian Peterson, there's a part of me that for the good of DeAndre Swift, um, they need to get rid of Adrian Peterson. <laughs> or they need to get him a, they need Adrian Peterson to sit him down and say, dude, you're not me. You don't have to live and die by this. This is not your game. And your game is this. Don't ignore me. When you see me doing this, don't do that because you can't do it. In fact, few people can do it. And you ain't going to be doing it by the time you're 27, much less 30 if you're still in the league, even though I'm 35. So, um, you know, he needs to have that kind of come to Adrian meeting, I think. Um, and and he can maybe continue to work on his own game and development trajectory. And if he does, I think you'll see a more efficient player and you'll see fewer instances where he leaves yards on the field. Because I think that's what he's done in some instances. Um, when the plays are, you know, and I think that that's the bigger part of the issue with him is that he's trying more dynamic moves than he should. Um, and I think that player teams that can run and hit, like, you know, the Atlanta Falcons have a run and hit defense with, you know, even though they feel like they've been more hit and run, you know, but like they've, um, they haven't they've, been bad against the run. Not they haven't with, been terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Cause AJ Terrell stepped up. Keanu Neal stepped up. And of course, Deion Jones and all those guys can cover a lot of ground and hit and wrap you up. Those types of athletic defenses get the better of DeAndre Swift. If you ask me. Um, okay. defenses that play a little bit more team oriented rally to the ball, uh, make sure you keep your gap, you know, contained and you're playing disciplined defense. Those are the ones where Swift, I think is going to be more consistent against them. Now that now we're not going to talk about receiving with that more. So just running behind the line of scrimmage as a receiver. I think he's fine. I think he's developing as a route runner. Obviously, any concerns that I think Jay Moyer probably had of him early on and that I would validate from what I saw at Georgia, I, I think where they're feeding him the ball, he's been able to get open and and do what he needs to do. Maybe they, he's not in as many situations that are that um, exploit his weaknesses, but I think he's been fine. Um, I just think he's a guy that wait till next year if you're excited about what you see this year. I think he'll be even better. Yeah. For what it's worth, he has been better, uh, you know, in zone blocking schemes than he has in man. I don't know how that really plays into some of the stuff you were saying there, but I just think about Dalvin Cook and I think about outside, you know, zone that they run. Um, and so that's actually been his best. That That's where he's been at his best is really in the outside zone game. Yeah. And I think that those are plays where you in outside zone, you kind you can't really do a lot with jump cuts on a regular basis because if you do, you're you're probably letting things go by you, or they're taking too long for you to make that kind of a move. Um, whereas I think with a gap scheme, you can kind of jump cut your way into one hole and be really dynamic with it. And as we see, that's what Adrian Peterson does best is run gap. Um, so he's a you know that's one of those things. It took him a while to learn. Took him about a year to learn zone and get better at that. So all right. So DeAndre was a good one. How about Chase Claypool? That's another guy we've had a little bit in common with. Because um, I'll lead with mine is that 
Yeah. After watching Chase Claypool get um, limited by the Titans, I was like, I think we're going to see a flip-flop in production until um, the Steelers either counter the counter that defenses are going to pose to him. Because what was happening before is when they played Chase Claypool in tight coverage with one man, those defenders probably were just covering him normally like, he's not going to make that catch at the sideline. And if he is, and if, and I'm not going to try and in, interfere or get too physical with him because I don't want to get called for an interference penalty. He probably won't make that tight boundary catch anyhow, which he did. Uh, he would do on a regular basis. Or they played zone against him, and they'd be like, well, he's not really the priority in, in our triangle here. You know, Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, Eric Ebron, all those guys, we're going to, sh- the guy who's going to be like help getting two men on one receiver He's going to choose everyone over Chase Claypool um, when it comes to two players entering that area. And that was what was happening as well. Um, And then Claypool was getting big plays off of them. Or if they were playing man-to-man where they'd have maybe a safety over top to keep an eye on things, the safety would be shaded towards Juju or Deontay or Eric Ebron and would be shaded away from Claypool where he'd just get the clear one-on-one. So the Steelers took advantage of that, and then the Titans were like, ah, oh, hold on here, he needs to be the priority. And so they you started to see them play him more physical to the point of interfering with him in single coverage if they needed to, um, to prevent a big play where he would catch the ball, um, as well as shading a safety over the top to give help, or when they had a linebacker giving help um, in the zone, they would immediately flood to chase Claypool and open things up for Deontay Johnson and Juju Smith-Schuster. And that's pretty much what we saw from the Titans game forward. Um, Against the Cowboys, what we saw was the Steelers adjust a little bit and use Smith-Schuster a little bit on some crossing routes, um, some short outs, um, finding ways to leverage his skills other than just the deep plays and or plays where they could kind of use him that would be more of a patience play in the zones. Um, and so as a result of that, um, I think that you're seeing him get you know, a few more looks, but I think his production still is going to wind up being more wide receiver three, like for fantasy for the year's end, where you get some you know, high marks and low marks, depending on how the defenses can play him. But he's no longer, as we've seen, that top five, <laughs> top 10 wide receiver in terms of production. And a lot of that has to do with the defense has figured him out, and now that means Smith Schuster is getting a little more love because, um, you know, the looks are so geared towards um, Claypool rather than Schuster. Now it's just easy for Ben to go, yeah, fine. I'll I'll tilt the script back to to Smith Schuster, and then we'll we'll take some shots for Claypool. But it's you know, he, he's not getting the easy love that he was early on. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting, um, you know, you brought up a lot of good stuff there. I mean, he's open by a step or more on 53%, you know, of his, of his targets. Um, the average for a wide receiver in 2019 was 42%, you know, so he's plus, you know, 10, he's plus 11% versus the league average in 2019. I haven't ran that number for 2020. I need to. Um, so, I mean, that's a decent stat. So what that means is he's got a step or more of separation, right? When he's targeted, um, it's not on non-target passes, but, um, the interesting thing with Claypool is really over the last three weeks though. I mean, he's kind of resurged a little bit, like he's at eight, 12 and 10 targets. Um, they're keeping him on the field a lot more. Um, what I've noticed they like to do is they run a lot of this jumbo package where literally they'll have 
they'll have two tight ends um, out there. They'll have a fullback and a halfback and Claypool. <laughs> and like he's it. Like Juju's not on the field. Uh, you don't have Deontay out there. Um, but but I think really where we're at, you know, you know, when I look at this offense and I look at what they're trying to do, you know, with Claypool, there are some there are certain things that they to your point, they like to use him for. And, and I do think that when those things are there, Ben's going to go there. But when they're not, he's going to take what else the defense gives him. I mean, and really right now, Claypool's being used more, you know, to stretch the field. You know, um, he's seeing some work on the intermediate, but really if you look at him overall, so like for over the last three weeks, uh, he's got eight targets over 20 yards. I could compare that to the league. That's probably one of the top. Um, but if you look at like Deontay Johnson, for example, right over that same time period, he's got five. If you look at Juju over the same time period, he's got three. But then if you start to look at that 10 to 19 yard range, you start to look at the zero nine to yard, zero to nine yard range. That's where you start to see, for example, uh, Juju in the zero to nine um, range has got, you know, 17 targets over the last three weeks. Um, and well, Claypool. Nope. Sorry. I got that one wrong. Claypool's is lower, you know, Claypool's at 12. So it's really to your point, they're all, they have them all doing different things. And I think it just depends on the look that the defense gives them. I, I think what you're going to see though, is it depends, you know, uh, cause like in, another thing you've talked about before that, you know, is the scouting, right? <laughs> if you're looking at the last three to four weeks of film, it's, uh, you know, and obviously they'll go further than that, but a lot of times teams will gear to take away whoever's been the hot player. Yeah. And so I think, it could it could just go back and forth is what I think. I think basically what Claypool does is he makes all three of these receivers really – any one of them could be a wide receiver one on a week. Any one of them could be wide receiver two. Any one of them could be a wide receiver three, right? Yeah. And, and they could all finish more in the wide receiver two to wide receiver three range because Ben's very willing. He doesn't have to force it. He's willing to go, you know, where, you know, the read takes him. Yeah, and if we look at the schematic perspective of this – a lot of what you'll see on Twitter from, you know, people who do the schematics would talk about how really it's just picking your poison. And they look at pre-snap, who's giving the most, you know, who basically has the most leverage or cushion. Um, where's the safety on that side of the field if they're, you know, where are they going and they're going to throw it where they ain't. I just, I've just i been joking that the Steelers are the throw it where they ain't offense, you know, right now early on in one of their early drives and, in some of their games, they just they basically look at this and go, okay, well, um, easy cushion for Ebron, easy cushion for Johnson. All of them can run after the catch, so just you know, give them their quick six yards and let them run until the defense tries to do something to stop them, and then that's going to open up things for one of those other players for a, a bigger shot downfield. So yeah, yeah. What's what is a little bit interesting, right? Is Juju is really he's not usually the first read, you know, it's usually the first read. The, the guy that is getting the most first read targets on the team is Deontay Johnson on the season. He's at 87%, right? 87% yeah. of his targets come on the first read. Claypool, 80% of his targets come on the first read. Juju is only 65%. So it's essentially, you know, he's looking at one of the other two guys. If it's not there, he's coming back to Juju. Um, Ebron mixes. I don't, I don't have Ebron. Let me pull Ebron in. and just look real quick because I didn't even look to see where Ebron's at. He's at 73%, right? So those guys are all above Juju <laughs> in first read target rate. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that Juju can't have a lot of catches, but where he's working underneath, essentially what it's telling you with the offense, they're looking outside and they're looking deep first. And if it's not there, they're working. Ben's working back inside and underneath. 
because that's where Juju does most of his work. There you go. So moving on from the voodoo mama Juju offense, you know, outside a little west of Scranton, Pennsylvania, we can move on to, uh, um, you know, let's look at Indianapolis because someone who feel, feels like people think is cursed is Jonathan Taylor. I've had people repeatedly ask me over the last month, you know, what's wrong with Jonathan Taylor? Is, you know, Colts, the Colts boards are going nuts. They think that he's like the apocalyptic, you know, he's the like Trent Richardson apocalypse of running backs and that they drafted a bust and they can't believe how, you know, that this is the end and they're worried about him. And I feel like that there's more panic about him than there is a pandemic. But, um, you, you know, but uh, maybe that's, I'm, that's, that's close. To, that's close. That's close to accurate. There's, uh, a lot I, of freak out. There's a lot of freak out going on. There it is a lot on, of, you know, your inner circles of Twitter and, and what you see. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to the fifth circle of hell, that's that's Indianapolis Colts um, fandom right now. You would think that they're they're ready to um, call an exorcist or like run them out of town or like, you know, Maybe go back to Salem Town type of things. Hopefully not, because we, you know, this guy can actually be a good running back. And I think we've seen this in multiple places, whether it's, um, you know, Nick Whalen and he and I've talked about him at length, um, as well as, um, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm trying to think of who else I've I've seen. Angelo, um, DFF Angelo, who is on, mm-hmm. um, did a really nice analysis of him last night on Twitter. Yeah, he and, did. Yeah, and it's basically just saying the same things that I would tell you is that he's going to be fine. The The issue with him is small things to clean up. He Sometimes he tries to make cuts that aren't well suited to his frame as a pro. He could get away with them in college. He's figuring out that he's not quite quick enough in the pros to make some of those dynamic cuts. That he's um, trying to set up runs that he shouldn't where he could use his power a little bit more efficiently as opposed to trying to run around people um, or trying to bounce certain things. Um, And that there are certain footwork combinations where he's just not working on from a balanced perspective under his frame. And I think that these are all correctable issues. And there are a lot of runs that he, even now the runs he makes that are positive runs are like light years away from what Trent Richardson couldn't do. So like, you know, if you hear the words Trent Richardson, just think in your mind, please stop. You know, like just please stop like making Trent Richardson comparisons because they're not remotely the same case. Um, And what you have with Jonathan Swift is a guy who probably just needs another year to figure out what he does and what he doesn't do well. I mean, a lot of backs needed that. And so he's he's good. He's just not great for this style of offense. I thought he would be better for this style of offense because I saw him so often run in gap style looks where he could really use that speed that he had and, and just run behind one gap and just shoot it and use that strength and power. But he's trying to be too cute with a lot of this stuff. And once he figures out that like, he doesn't have to be that nuanced and that he's overthinking things. I think he'll be a lot better because I mean, they miss Marlon Mack and I can't believe that I'm saying they miss Marlon Mack, but you know, Marlon Mack, if Salvin Ahmad were, if Salvin Ahmed was in this offense, Salvin Ahmed would probably be the starter right now because Salvin Ahmed is don't think meat, just give it the gas kind of player. Like literally great burst, 
hit the thing downhill, find the open, just there's the open crease. There's the semi open crease. There's where I'm just supposed to go and just hit it hard and hit it fast. Don't think about it. That's what Ahmed's doing well in Miami right now. Um, even though most of that's off draw plays and delays. Um, but Taylor's overthinking it. That's all. It, and it's overthinking and he has to be a little bit more, um, he has to develop a few more nuances with footwork. So as a result of that, I think people are losing their minds because they heard so many good things about him and he's he's been up and down at best, you know. Yeah, part of me does wonder <clears throat> how much of that is just the expectations that folks had coming in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, expectations, especially in fantasy circles, were sky high for Jonathan Taylor, right? People were comparing him to Nick Chubb, what he's not. People were comparing him... You know, uh, you know, who else was it that they were comparing him to? I can't remember now, but I was just kind of thinking, look, I like this guy. But like they were it was just the praise was like enormous. Was like it Matt Forte? In, I, don't I don't think remember. it was Forte. It was somebody else, but I can't remember now. But it was a name that I was kind of like, whoa, we should probably just tap the brakes. <laughs> Can know? I give you a name? Can I give you a name that I don't think I mentioned to anybody because I just didn't want people to freak out in a bad way. But now I kind of look back at it and think it's funny. Beanie Wells, yeah. Beanie Wells. Yeah, that's, that, that's definitely going to scare people. Man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of reminded me of Chris Wells a little bit, um, but I liked what Chris Wells could have been. So, uh, you know, that's why I didn't go there because knowing how fantasy players are, they like, they get twitchy about names as opposed to what their games yeah, really are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look, you hit on a lot of great things there, right? So like if you, this is what's kind of interesting, right? With the Colts right now. And you talked about that gap style offense. So if you look at power, counter, trap, pull lead, you know, all those, you know, types of runs, he's, he's only got 22 of those attempts this year and he's averaging 5.7 yards per carry on that. Now, if you go over and you look at how he's doing in inside and outside zone, you can tell me there's something else you want me to look at. But if you look at inside and outside zone, his average yards per carry drops down to 3.9, you know, and he's he's getting 2.3 yards before carry, which for a guy his size, you know, you'd think he'd be getting another two to three after that, which 2.3 before contact is pretty good, you know. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're just not using a ton, you know, of those plays. So if you look at just, you know, a true man blocking scheme, uh, he's got 35 of those attempts, 2.7 yards per carry. So um, really they haven't used a ton of, you know, the pulls, the traps, a lot of those kind of things. It's just been much more limited and he struggled in these other concepts. Now, so much can be baked into that. You know, I didn't take out like, for example, inside the five where everybody's bunched in, like really, if you want to do this analysis, right, I would, get rid of all that, nothing, you know, inside their own 10 or within 10 yard line of the other team. But overall, like you can tell there's a drastic difference between the two. And the other thing that I've noticed, you know, with Taylor, he's a higher, he, he gets stopped in the backfield at a much higher rate than what I expected. So if you look at attempts where he's been um, minus three or zero yards gained, he's got 16 <laughs> of those, uh, I haven't looked at that against the league. I would need to go run it again, but that's pretty high, especially for somebody that you would have thought was kind of this more no nonsense runner that I, well, at least that's what I think a lot of people thought about Jonathan Taylor. That might not have been accurate. Then you've got 51 of his attempts going for just one to three yards. So that's 67 of his attempts, either as a loss or three yards. Right. And then you go to the four to nine, you know, it's 33 
He's got eight in the 10 to 19 yard, and then he's got three carries over 20. So he does have some explosive plays. The bigger issue, he's got to clean up some of these deals. And this probably goes back to your comment, right, where he thinks he needs to make this cut that he can't necessarily make. It also goes back to what you were talking about uh, with Angelo online last night. He actually had two plays where he demonstrated this, where it's like he tried to go he tried to do one thing too many behind the line of scrimmage. Right. Yeah. And it really got him. And I think that's what, you know, you're seeing here. Um, I didn't, I didn't break those down by whether they were inside zone or power. We could, we could look at that some other time too, but those were just the things that popped out, you know, to me with him, but there, uh, you know, the fear for fantasy owners I get for, for this season is real. You cannot start Jonathan Taylor right now, period. Yeah. And so, I'll tell you, look, guys, I don't own him a ton, Matt. He's on my best team. So, you know, I play in the FFPC, there's like 15,000 teams in it. My, I have two teams in like the top 200. He's on one of them. Like, and I can't even put him, I'm having to start Daryl Henderson, like over him. Like, yeah. I don't feel good about it. <laughs> but it's like, I can't get him on the field. So here are his snaps over the last three weeks, 34%, 31%, 24%. And this is what blows you away. His rushing attempts in week six, he had 80% of the team. Here is his three weeks since, and this was coming off the bye where teams make changes. And they went to Jordan Wilkins. He's got 28%, 29%, and 23% of the carries. He's never out there in the two-minute drill. Obviously, that makes sense. They're going to put Naheem Hines out there in the two-minute drill. You know, I mean, that's a good fit with Phillip Rivers. Uh, long down and distance, they do trust him as a pass blocker. He's, but it's deteriorating as well. He went, he's gone from 100% to 67% to 50%. So, and again, these things can ebb and flow, but those are all bad trends for him. Um, yeah. Well, pass blocking was never his strength. So that's interesting that they put him out there as much as they did, and they must have seen the decline. So I have to watch a little bit for that. But what I wondered from you too is how many touches per game is he averaging? You know, like... Yeah, right now, um, let me. You want like total, like his, like I have it as opportunities, like targets and and attempts. Yeah, just the way I. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. So r- right now he's averaging fifteen a game on the season, but if you look at him over the three games since the bye, it's ten. That's interesting. So you look at someone in contrast who I just wrote about today, Antonio Gibson, who you know is a top fourteen running back right now in fantasy, Crazy. and and yeah. And he's on pace for 1,134 yards and 12 touchdowns, um, you know, in terms of what he's doing. And he's averaging between 10 and 15 touches a game, I think. Um, And he's never dropped below nine, but he's never been, I think he's had one game above 15. He had a 20 game, 20 touch game against the Cowboys. Okay. So when you look at Gibson and watch his play, I would be willing to, just based on what I've watched, and I think Jay kind of liked my thought too on Twitter when we were, I was mentioning it yesterday is Antonio Gibson's running blindfolded basically <laughs> like in terms of like, if you watch his feet, his feet, he, he clearly has a summer or two to, to learn how to figure out some footwork patterns that will maximize what he can do. The fact that he's getting yards the way he is, I think has somewhat to do with opportunity and somewhat to do with the fact that he's a stud athlete who has great hand-eye coordination, terrific strength, terrific burst. Um, and he has some nuance for how to, you know, create openings. But let me tell you, this guy leaves a lot of yards on the field still as well. Um, but it's about expectation. And I think most, you know, people thought, 
you know, they set the expectation very early in Washington. He's got a year to have to learn. He's raw. He needs to learn the running back position. Yeah, they got rid of Adrian Peterson by the end of the summer and made him the lead back. Um, but still, they set the expectation pretty low, like to the media, like, and to the public. Like, this guy, we, you know, he's a project, you know? Well, the project is getting enough touches to be good, but you watch his film and he's still a project. Like, I mean, wait till he, like, learns. Like, this guy could be a star if he learns it. We'll see if he if he can learn as much as what's available for him to, to um, you know, exploit. But uh, Jonathan Taylor, everybody was like, oh, he's going to be a star right away. And I understand that. I thought he was going to be very, I thought he was going to be one of the two best backs right away um, by the season's end. And it's just, you know, as a result, you know, they're, I am surprised they're running as many zone plays as they had. And that was another point that I was thinking about that I forgot because that is where he's overthinking some of those things. And he was more of a gap runner who could do some zone or man plays at Wisconsin. So it's mm -hmm. interesting that they're running more of that and he's having issues with that as opposed to running gap. And I wonder why that is because he seems to me like a, a good fit for the, for the gap scheme. And this was one of the better gap running teams, but um, you know, it's fascinating. All I know is that when I look at his game this year may not be great, but I would be, I would be buying low on him, you know, in dynasty leagues or taking advantage of what his low ADP will be near the eighth, ninth, tenth round next year when everyone's yeah. talking up nine. And even prize. even even in season long, right? So I mean, we talk about some of these things on on the podcast that I do with Brian Drake or at the Fantasy Football Hustle, and you know, mostly we're focused on the utilization, you know, for the most part. And what I tell you know, people is because, you know, people get in your chat room and it's all, oh, do I just drop Jonathan Taylor for, I don't know, insert name here, <laughs> you know, somebody, a complete scab. And my answer is still no. Like, I, if you're in a smaller league, I get it. You can move on if, if there's something you really want to go get. But in larger leagues, like, there's typically still not anything out there that makes me want to drop Jonathan Taylor. Things can change really quickly in the NFL. Like, yeah. something can click for him. Jordan Wilkins could get hurt, which has really been – that's the difference. Jordan Wilkins is getting way more work, right? And and he's not been bad with it. Jordan Wilkins, like that's an old uh, that's an old RSP, you know, kind of – I don't want to call it a favorite, but you definitely called out that Wilkins could surprise people, I remember, back in his rookie year. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think some of it is Wilkins has stepped up and shown he's dependable. You know, Taylor is struggling with some things that, you know, they – you know, they're asking him to improve on. But, you know, things could change. It's still a really good offensive line. We know he's talented. So, I mean, to me, if I'm seeing – if I see him get dropped and I'm in a large league, I'm picking him up. Like, I'm not just thinking dynasty. I'm picking him up this year to just stash him. I'm not starting yeah. him. But if I can stash him, you know, I'm going to try. Yeah. I mean, I, I – in one of my dynasty leagues, I had – I traded for Taylor. I actually traded away – this is going to sound so horrible, so it's going to be fun to tell. I traded away Russell Wilson – um, for Jonathan Taylor and a second round pick in, in Dynasty and thought, wow, this is great. And I only need one running back to really thrive in that league. And mind you, I also have Jared Goff, um, Patrick Mahomes, and Lamar Jackson. So I thought this was my time to like pick up a stud running back and just go from there. And um, I thought, I'll get a young stud in, in Taylor. This will work out just fine. Well, my team's still in first place and, and is doing well on the basis of all my other talent, but my running back position has basically been Chase Edmonds and 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 Jonathan Taylor and occasionally Duke Johnson and 
that's been the basically and me adding just picking guys up where I can and just starting one wherever I can and I'm just not getting much out of it. So it was funny because this week finally um, somebody actually made me an offer and they're like he's he's obviously he's I'm in one of these leagues that has deteriorated into one of these situations where like we have these teams that like perennially like try to like just salvage all the draft picks that they can get and there's this one guy for the past three years who like has built a team that's scoring high now but I think for five years now he's literally like dumped every he churns all these top players and and like literally ends up with every pick in the draft you know for for like he has like three quarters of the picks in every round except for mine because I never trade with him but this this week he he asked he offered me Nick Chubb for a first and a second and I was like yeah, I, I'll do that. I'll take Nick Chubb. <laughs> that, I'm done. Uh, that yeah. was an auto yes. Yes, that was that was that was actually me more like rubbing my eyes and then going, yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. It's um, you going. Is this right? That yeah, did I, did I read that? this right? Yeah, it's like the same. It was kind of the same kind of vein as earlier when I got um Miles Garrett in the draft as well for like a for a first round pick last year, and I was like, you're giving me Miles Garrett for. You just want me to give you a first round pick for Miles Garrett? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Let me rub my eyes on that one too. So, yeah. but you know, there we go. So Jonathan Taylor, that's the deal there. Him and Antonio Gibson, fascinating players. We'll see how they, they move forward. Let's stay on the same team and talk about Michael Pittman, which should really, really be heighten the interest of our my buddy Alex Hanowitz, who runs um, a little little shop called Leverage. That you'll be hearing more about and if you look at the videos that i've been doing with coach paint uh, he heads up that group he doesn't like himself mentioned but you can find you, you can find his email on those uh, on youtube and on my site in terms of where to contact him if you have interest in doing some videos that have some coach paint editing and graphics they do a great work and i just kind of wanted to compliment them on that um and you know tout them where i can so but he he wants me to do a michael pittman video um fairly soon and told me that he'd be mad at me if uh if i didn't at least get michael Pittman and one other guy that he wanted that he wants me to share um before the end of the year and i've been kind of waiting on some of the rookies um but you know looking at michael Pittman, what are your thoughts about his game to me i always thought he was kind of like oh yeah he fits in in indianapolis because he's like a mike williams-esque type of clone or at least a kasim osgood plus type of player you know who who can you know get down the field win the contested catch and you know maybe give you a little bit of yards after the catch but just a big tall body who can who can play some football and I'm just wondering if what you're seeing with him is anything different from the data yeah and so I mean I think of even like Frank Reich you know in this offense right um Frank Reich comes from working under Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson comes from under Andy Reid. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can run this offense, but I even think back to like Alshon Jeffrey, right? Really being, you know, when they traded for him, he had some big playability left, but really he was a possession type receiver, right? And so um, when I look at Pittman, what's most interesting to me is that if you look at his first three games, week one, two, and three, before he was injured, um, you know, he was it, the first game. He really was only on the field, um, you know, for about half of the passing plays. The next week, like he immediately jumped to 100%, but he was really still just more of a, a tertiary or even, you know, beyond that kind of piece, right? They were still 
doing other things. Now, this is this is before Paris Campbell was hurt. T.Y. Hilton was still healthy at the time. So he was really just kind of, you know, he was almost an afterthought, right? And and then you saw, you know, in the week three, that was really going on to continue, and he got hurt, you know, and he left that game. Um, but what I noticed is going back and looking at that, um, you know, his he wasn't getting a lot of looks, um, you know, all over the field. So, for example, you know, over those first three games, no targets over 20 yards. He had two targets in the 10 to 19 yard. He was really just working that zero to nine yard possession guy, right? That's just where he was working. Now, since he's come back, we've seen his routes. So in weeks eight, nine, and 10, week eight, they kind of eased him in, you know, 54% of the routes. But then last, uh, or week nine, 83%, week um, 10, 95%. So his targets have gone from three to 18 to 23%. Um, now, this isn't an offense that I see ever just having a true alpha. They like to spread it around everybody. It's the same way I look at the Eagles offense. People are like, oh, is it going to be Rager over Fulgham now? They're probably going to spread it, spread it around, right? It's, they're going to, they like to honestly be like in that 18 to 20% range with three or four guys. And this offense is going to be similar, but I do think Pittman has a chance to really kind of separate, you know, as the lead guy. And here's why. Again, it's, it, I look at utilization and what it makes me think about, and sometimes this could be wrong. You could be reading too much into it. But I truly think, like, when you start seeing coaches do some of the things they're doing with him, it's obvious they're trying to scheme him up. So before, he was he didn't get any snaps inside or from working from the slot. You know, he saw a few 8%, 7%, 18%. Since he's been back, 50% of his snaps inside, 49%, 39% of his snaps inside. Right. And so that's getting him more open looks. So his, he's been like last week, seven of his 88% of his targets, he had a step or more, right. Of separation. Um, you know, before that, you know, looking back to his games earlier, he wasn't getting open. He, he wasn't getting some of those same types of looks. So the, the quality of his looks are improving. Um, and again, the other thing I would, I would mention is going back to, he's being targeted all over the field. So now he's getting targets behind the line of scrimmage. He wasn't getting those before, right? He's getting targets in the zero to nine range, just like he was. He's getting targeted in the 10 to 19 yard range. And he has four targets over 20 yards in the last uh, two games. So he's a guy that where he went from being a tool, they were just using one way so now he's a tool they're using every way and they're moving him all over to do it. And typically when you see things like that, it doesn't always work this way, but typically when you see things like that, especially for a player that's young like this, it's a good sign. It's a good sign. It shows you that like, he's the guy they're really kind of building the offense and the passing game around. Now rivers is still going to go where the read takes him. Right. But it's given Pittman the chance to really be uh, that first look a lot of plays so over the last two weeks he's been the first read 71 percent and 88 percent of the time um if you look at you know wide receivers um you know on average 76 percent of the reads were on the first read last year so i mean he's right he's a little above you know what that average is but just just the way they're moving him around giving him deep targets giving him behind the line of scrimmage targets that stuff all points to me that you know he's probably going to be pretty strong, you know, down the stretch, as long as he's healthy. I just think, you know, as he continues to improve, I think they're going to continue to do more with it. Well, listen, we'll continue to do more of these podcasts as time permits. Um, you know, it's always enjoyable to have Dwayne on, obviously, you know, I, we get a lot of great feedback about, you know, us getting to ch do a little bit of talk about film and data whenever we get the opportunity and you can find Dwayne at Dwayne McFarlane, of course, on Twitter, you can find him at PFF you know, where he does fantasy work there. And of course the fantasy football hustle 
podcast with Brian Drake and those guys do awesome work. So you can find me at Thanks, Mountain. Man. Yeah, man, my pleasure. You can find me at Mountain Waldman. And, uh, you know, listen, if you like the podcast, rate and review it. We, uh, we always appreciate that. And you guys have a good week and a happy Thanksgiving to you if I don't hear from you next time.